This is the Beyond Mission podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. This year we're exploring the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, and we've come to the end, Ben. We are now done with the book of Acts. We're done with Paul's and other people's letters, and we're down to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. I don't know if I, I held off on this till the end because it's the book of Revelation. It's kind of hard, or I held off because, well, it's written quite a bit later than the rest of them. Uh, but nonetheless, we're on Revelation. So you're looking forward to this Revelation discussion for four weeks? You ready to roll with me? Yeah. Do I have a choice? Well, you know, I suppose there's a door open. <laughs> you, could, you know, or there, you could unplug the microphone or you could, you could hand the microphone to, to Doug. Doug. That's right. That would be the deal. And we could interview him on Revelation. Yeah. It would probably actually be much more sensible. It might be. Or we just ask Doug about his general revelation about whatever. About stuff. Yeah. You think his dad jokes come from inspiration, revelation? Like, where do these come from? Are they some, is there a dad joke on high? There, there are, you, you can. Like, Doug is really quick-witted. Like, for all my dad jokes, I have to turn to the internet for inspiration, um, which means me verbatim copying some dad joke that I've read or seen. And uh, Doug told one of his dad jokes one time when we were in here, and I actually went home and tried to share it with with Sherry, my wife, and uh, I couldn't get through it because I, I was laughing so hard trying to... Uh, trying to to share the joke with her, I was laughing so hard, um, I couldn't get it out. Kinda, and for a good dad it. joke, you have to be like pretty deadpan, yeah. you know. Which Doug pulls off like a genius. Yeah, because I I bite half the time. Right. Yep, yep. Thinking it's a real thing, and there there we go. So well, <laughs> since we're not going to do four weeks of dad jokes, I guess we we'll do a four weeks of revelation. Though we we still I'm still holding out for that final episode when we just do some interviewing of Doug. So uh, we're putting the whammy on him right now publicly, though he can scrub this. It might not end up publicly, but I'd, I'd love to do a, you know, episode 100 with Doug. Wouldn't that be, do you think we should do that? Absolutely. Should we do an audience poll or something? That'd be your mom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mom, how do you feel about this? Okay. No, I, I think people want to hear from Doug. We talk enough about him. And he, you know, he's always working behind the scenes, making everybody else look better than, than they should. Uh, and so I, I think we should, I think let's, we should pull Doug in, give him a yeah, mic and that. let him take off. Let's do that. And, uh, that'll, it'll ramp us up toward next year when we're going to hit the old Testament. So we'll, we'll take a little break in there to, to do Doug. Now, we always joke like your mom's the only listener to this, uh, but we have a few others and Doug uh, has told us there's somebody from Germany that's the first listener every week because the time zone so something like that i think so that's pretty cool we're international we're we are international yeah who would have who would have thunk there, there you go okay so we've avoided revelation for a really long time here but we probably should dive into it just a bit and revelation is a fantastic book it's at the end of the bible uh, people have all kinds of responses to it we're not going to dive into the different means of studying it, the different streams or views, and some of those things. Uh, number one, we don't have time, and 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 number two, you know, I kind of don't want to. I, I mean, I don't, I don't mean just like let's just just look at the 
the picture of what it says and what it's what it's all about. So that's a uh, that's hopefully what we're going to be able to do. What we'd like to do that at the Revelation chapters two and three, there is a vision that's given to seven different churches in what we now know as Western Turkey, and it includes Ephesus that we're familiar with and several other churches in cities around there. And each week we're going to look at one or two of those as well as another aspect of Revelation. If you want to get a fuller picture, go ahead and listen to the sermons that are happening at the same time, which will deal with some different passages. And even with those together, the four weeks here in the podcast and the four weeks of the sermons, we're not going to be able to fully deal with the 22 chapters of Revelation uh, altogether. So some of that will be left to the listener's own study time. But let's jump right in, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll see the, the, the full context of what it is. Chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ. That's a good place to stop. This, is, this, is, this came from Christ himself, from Jesus to the church. And I, I think that's a, a great reminder. You know, we think about the, the Bible that we started last year when we look, looked at the four Gospels. And it began with Jesus, of course, in the Gospels. And it hearkened back to creation. In the beginning was the Word. And here we are in the book of Revelation, and it's the very end of the Bible, and it's still all about Jesus. There's something to that concept then about remembering that everything in Scripture either points toward or is about or points back toward Jesus Christ. Why do you think that is so important for us to to grasp as we dive into Revelation? One of the aspects of that, um, why it's important to grasp, is that uh, it conditions how we read Scripture. We read it more... Christocentrically, to where we understand that the whole of Scripture revolves around Christ Himself, which then uh, conditions us as we read the Old Testament or in our reading of the New Testament, considering either how, as you said, this points to Christ, is a revelation of Christ. What is it saying about our relationship to Jesus Christ? And this is one of those things where I'm really excited uh, in the coming year, in 2024 you know, as we're, we're going to be looking at uh, the Old Testament, and much of that conversation will revolve around how the passages of the Old Testament point to Christ himself. Yeah, that's so important to know. I know lots of people who think, well, the Old Testament's kind of irrelevant because it starts with Jesus, and nothing could be further from the truth. So the book of Revelation makes it very clear, and John is writing this and saying it is the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of his prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. A couple times there, the reference right away in the first few verses says the time is near; it will soon take place. And you know there are, there's some thoughts you know that 
this is really about them. And But there's some thoughts and nuts about us. It's going to take place soon for us. I, I kind of camp out, you know, in the area that it's both. I mean, it's it, it was about the folks that were receiving it, but we have good words to receive to, uh, for it today. We are not going to get into trying to predict when when this is going to be finally completely fulfilled. At least I'm not. I don't know. I don't know if you. Maybe you have the the inside brother, but I, I no. don't have that. And no, and that that's one of the things we read Revelation. The the time is near. It really harkens back to Christ's words uh, in the gospel accounts, where Jesus persistently makes the point uh, to live with urgency relative to our relationship with him, because we don't know the day or time of his return. And so uh, to, uh, to that end, we're supposed to live as if it is imminent. Um, and as to those who have their ideas about predicting, is this the generation or is this the, the day or time that Christ will return? Jesus himself said that he did not know the day of his return that the Father knows the day of his return. And so those conversations relative to, is this, you know, is the return of Christ near? We should live as if it is. But every generation since the resurrection and ascension has believed that they were living in the proverbial end times. And so in some ways we all are, um, as we live and and deal uh, and wrestle with the brokenness of this world, but when somebody starts trying to give me date and time and year of Christ's return, um, they're, they're engaged in behavior and action that is, uh, is unbiblical. I would agree with that. Um, so far, everybody who's done that has been wrong. That's right. I guess eventually somebody will be right, but, <laughs> so, but it, it seems it, to be... It, a, well, yeah, and it'll be by accident. It'll be by It seems to be... Yeah, I agree. It's kind of a futile... Uh, thing to do, but and I, the way I look at this is that this is definitely written to these seven churches. We're going to get into those, but it has definite implications for us today and for all time that we want to we want to take a look at. Okay, so in verse four, J- Revelation one, verse four, John to the seven churches. That's the primary audience in the province of Asia, which is now we know as Western Turkey. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, Jesus, and from the seven spirits before his throne, the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of, and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. There's a powerful statement right there that it comes from Jesus, and he has been the one who has qualified us to even receive this message. I mean, hallelujah to that, right? And it goes on in verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Christ is coming back. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all people on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. I am Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So it's, it's God's powerful message right out of the gate that this message 
is for those he has redeemed by his blood, his freed us, it says, from our sins, and he is coming back. Jesus, the Father, is going to send the Son back, and we, uh, even though we don't know that day and that time and hour and all that stuff, we know that he, he shall return, and for that, um, praise be to God, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and in these words here, one of the things that we get, as you've talked about, you know, the, the letter itself, its first recipients are these seven churches that we're going to get to. And as John is revealing and speaking to the character of Jesus Christ, John is, it, th- these words are the intent behind these words, um, not only to, to give glory to God, to give glory to, the, to, the, to, to Jesus uh, himself and his character, but it's also to, as an encouragement to uh, those seven churches, you know, when we, when we read Jesus is the ruler of, of the kings of the earth, you know, he who is the alpha and the omega, uh, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty, we read that in, in verse eight there. And uh, it's a reminder that Jesus is sovereign for these, uh, for these ch- uh, churches there um, in the first century. It's a reminder to us that Jesus, that Jesus is sovereign. He's sovereign over Caesar. Long after Caesar is dead and gone, Christ will be. Um, with the yeah. perspective of history, even, it's interesting to note that Christianity has long outlived the Roman Empire. And Rome seemed to be sovereign in many ways uh, at the time, almost like this eternal uh, kingdom that was existent and for the Christians at that time was oppressive. And so. So drawing the, the, those first century believers, drawing their hearts to the supremacy of Christ, reminding them of the supremacy of Christ was an encouragement to them as they sought to live faithfully under the rule of Caesar. That's a really good word. Let, let's jump into that. We're going to take a look, as I said, at one or two of the churches that it was addressed to each week and then another aspect. So we've already looked at another aspect. Now let's jump into one of those churches, and that is the church in Ephesus. We'll take these in order as they come. And now we're in Revelation chapter 2. Again, if you want to get a fuller context of some more stuff, uh, tune in on the sermons that we have, and and they will um, help you maybe learn a little bit more as you go along. But we're going to jump to Revelation chapter 2, and the first seven verses, it's all about this ministry in the city of Ephesus, which we're familiar with because Paul stopped there along the way in the book of Acts and wrote the book of Ephesians and sent Timothy there. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes in and out of Ephesus. So now here we are 35 years or so later, and let's see what's up in the city. Verse 1 of chapter 2, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Ben, this might be a good place just to stop and say, there's a, there's a lot of imagery in the book of Revelation. And there's a kind of a couple of approaches people can have, and sometimes it's trying to figure out what each and every one of them means exactly. And, and another one is to take it for what it is. This is known as apocalyptic literature. It was a particular kind of writing that was being done in that time, and um, among those kind uh, those folks, they were doing this. It it disappeared fairly soon after this. There, there are no more examples of 
apocalyptic literature not much long uh, after this, I don't believe, but it was a particular style of writing. And I don't know that it's important for us to figure out what every single object or animal or number or color or phrase means in order to have a deep sense of awe about the book of Revelation. Are you, are you in the same camp I am on that? We haven't really sat down and talked about this, or are you, you more, a little more formulaic than I am on it? No, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not more formulaic on it. I mean, I think there's some images that we can point to. And, you know, when it talks about the seven lampstands, I, I believe that that's uh, in relation to the seven churches themselves. But all of that uh, being said, yeah, the vast majority of the imagery that we encounter in Revelation, the amount of ink that has been spilled trying to define what those images relate to. You know, later we'll, we'll see these uh, pictures of locust swarms, you know, these oversized locust swarms. And, you know, and I, I've seen people, read people who are, are theologians who believe, you know, the locust swarms are Apache helicopters. And that, yeah, I mean, the idea that I need to, or to define what these locust swarms are, um, because they could just be locusts, you know, or uh, who knows? And, and so, yeah, the, again, the amount of ink spill trying to define those images, uh, it, the, the, the amount of debate that has gone into those images, um, I hate to say it's a waste of time, uh, but it actually, for, for, for me at least, strips away from the ultimate message of Revelation itself, which is to be an encouragement to the church encouraging the church to faithfulness, reminding the church of Christ's deep and abiding love for it, uh, and a reminder that at the end of the day, the thing that we know for certain is that God has already won. And we, yeah. we see that constant message being pushed in Revelation, again, as an encouragement to faithfulness, that we are following a sovereign God who is good and loving, who we can give ourselves over to, no matter the circumstances before us, no matter the persecution in front of us. And that was good news for the Christians in Ephesus, to whom this first section was written, because as we have studied before, they were living right in the throes of the Roman Empire. I mean, all, all seven of these churches were. And Ephesus, they had, they had stuff that was going on around them. It was, a, it was a tough world to live in. Remember that Ephesus was known for the Greek goddess Artemis, this multi-breasted figure that they made statues of, and it was all about uh, fertility, and, and they had all kinds of sexual perversion that was going on. And so he jumps right in in, in this revelation from Christ to, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, and says, says to the people in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That, that's a pretty, pretty nice set of praise there that comes to them right away as, as they're one of the readers of this 
this that's being passed around, this, this what we know as the book of Revelation, and they're being praised for things like hard work and perseverance and resisting wickedness and for vetting their leaders, not just letting anybody come in to lead the church, for endurance, you know, not giving up in the, in the middle of the turmoil that's around them in this city, which was a magnet for visitors and for merchants who were, who were making enormous amounts of money over these Artemis statues. And they were being praised, like, you, you've hung in there. You've, you've done well. Um, it, it, it goes a long way. That's some encouragement, doesn't it? I mean, don't you think it, like, yeah, it, it yeah, helps I, you in a long way? And I way? think it, in some ways it's a tribute to their faithfulness um, to Paul's words. You know, when, when Paul meets with the Ephesian elders at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, one of the things he tells them, or he warns them, uh, to protect, to guard the flock against uh, false teachers. Mm-hmm. And, and so we see that they have lived that command out uh, as they have, have sought to, uh, to, to live in faithfulness to Christ. Yeah, that is so true. Let me pick up, just, I'm going to jump over to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment to get a sense of this, this ministry that was taking place in Ephesus. Again, this was earlier, about 35 years earlier, I think, that the book of Ephesians was written than, than the book of Revelation. Nonetheless, these are the same people. And, and what Paul said back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, he said, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And let's listen to these prayers. He says in verse 17, I keep asking, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And, and it goes on and on from there. And it seems like they got it. I mean, it seems like it took. Like, like Paul prayed this prayer 35 years earlier, and according to these, this listing of things that, that Jesus gives, they're being praised for staying true to the faith. And I, I guess, you know, at the end of the day, Ben, I, I think about my life in Christ and my service to him, and then on a maybe more professional level, my, my role as a pastor, and I just want to be found faithful. I mean, I, I, you know, yes, successful. I'm a driven human being. <laughs> I really am. Type A. I'm not type A. I'm type A plus, by the way. And so, you know, I mean, I just like, um, I hate to lose, you know, and, I, and I, that's just part of my wiring and part of my nature. And, and I want my church to do well. And that, that's been true for me for over 35 years. But at the end of the day, I want to be found faithful. That, that seems to be where it is now. It's not all happy news in Ephesus because after the kind of the softening them up, here comes the punch to the gut in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come 
to you and remove your lampstand from its place. You'll no longer be one of my churches or have influence in the area. Oh, my. Let's just stop there for a moment. How do you think it is that they have forsaken their first love, which is for Christ, and yet they had all these other positive attributes going on? Were they just going through the motions? What, I, what do you figure? I, I don't know. I, you know, the way I read this, and, and I could be, I mean, honestly, I could be wrong, um, but the way I read this is I think one of the things that I love about a, the the church in Ephesus within the context of the New Testament is we really get to see kind of the life cycle of the church, the birth of the church, and see Paul's letter to the church and Paul's interaction with the church. And then we get to Revelation and we see where the church is, you know, 50 years uh, down the road. But, uh, but when, I, when I read this passage, one of the thoughts that I have is when the gospel initially came to Ephesus, it took on like wildfire. And so people were coming to receive Christ hand over fist to the point to where, you know, the, the uh, idol making silver, uh, silversmiths or whatever were like losing money, which caused a riot uh, in the city itself. And when I read the, the words here, my thought is, is that in an, in an effort to maintain theological faithfulness and theological purity uh, within the church, that first love to bear witness to mm-hmm. Christ, to make him known uh, in the community, to call people to receive Christ, you know, they, they kind of put a barrier up around the church uh, for the sake of theological faithfulness. And in doing so, they did not go beyond the walls of the church to bear witness to Christ in the community and to call people to receive Christ. Yeah, because in that list of things of what you've done well, sharing your faith is not one of them. Right. Hmm. So you think that's kind of like they, they had built a maybe a theological moat around themselves and kept themselves in and kept the world out and kept them out of the world and but had done a good job of making sure that they remained faithful that they remained faithful but they weren't necessarily spreading in their faith. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a it's it's one of those things where I think it's a warning to us all because I think we can fall into a trap of, and again, uh, theological faithfulness is a good thing. Theological faithfulness, though, leads us to bear witness to Jesus in the world. It gives us urgency to bear witness to Jesus in the world. I mean, as we're growing in relationship with Christ, it leads to theological faithfulness, and then it also leads us to uh, be an ambassador for Christ in the world. The problem is, though, is that if we're if we're living in fear of of theological impurities coming into the church, it can create an environment where we put a blockade up around us because we see that as the means to purity. We see that as a means to faithfulness. We see that as a means to guard our own hearts against unfaithfulness and to guard the people within uh, our particular local church um, against, you know, false teachers or whatever. Well, that seems to fit with verse 6 when he comes back and says, but you, Ephesian Christians, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practice 
of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Just a little context. They were some folks who were compromisers, uh, who were believers, but indulged in sinful behavior. And so the Ephesians were really good at keeping that kind of syncretism out, that, that kind of uh, compromise out, and but maybe had lost that love. That's an interesting insight. Um, it's really applicable to many of us today. I, I think an awful lot of Christians go almost their entire life and don't lead someone to Christ. I mean, that's probably the majority that would be true for. And we were good at Bible studies and small groups and prayer and uh, lots of things that worship with other people who are believers. Um, interesting insight for us today. Well, there's so much more that we could dig into and, and we're just not going to take the the time to do that. But next week, we're going to continue the discussion. We'll pick up a couple more churches and then dive into a little bit more. And it's the, the scroll that in Revelation chapter 5 and the question of who is worthy to open the scroll. If you want to jump in deeper, you can go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, and click on the Beyond Mission link. And there you're going to find the other links to more podcasts as well as the sermons if you want to dive deeper in this as you go. Now, if you want to stay up to date with these Be On a Mission podcasts, we encourage you to like and subscribe wherever you get them. Until next time, have a great week.